Good morning, church family. It's uh, good to be back, um, although I didn't really leave, but good to be back in the, in the pulpit sense. And I am noticing some changes, uh, one of which might be per- particularly interesting to you is that there is no clock here. Uh, <clears throat> so we'll see what effect that has on us this morning. Uh, well, we've already had a, a, a good morning. I hope, well, many of us were able to, to be here in the Sunday school hour and hear from uh, the Kiefers, share about their work, and, uh, and, and we'll be praying for them a little bit later. But uh, uh, it was a, a joy to, to see what the Lord's doing, uh, hear of the gospel abounding, and I was jotting notes even uh, as I was listening to things that I want to make connections to from our passage this morning. And so speaking of that, we're, we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 66. Isaiah chapter 66. And uh, if you can find uh, the Psalms, you know that trick when you were a little kid, just kind of split the Bible down the middle. It usually leads you to the Psalms. You can go Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, and then you will find Isaiah. And we are in the final chapter, in fact, the final words of the prophet Isaiah this morning, and we will be reading verses 15 through 24. Isaiah 66, verses 15 through 24. And the words will be up on the screen as well. Hear the word of the Lord. For behold, the Lord will come in fire. And his chariots like the whirlwind, to render his anger in fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire will the Lord enter into judgment, and by his sword with all flesh. And those slain by the Lord shall be many. Those who sanctify and purify themselves to go into the gardens, following one in the midst eating pig's flesh and the abomination and, uh, and mice shall come to an end together, declares the Lord. For I know their works and thoughts. And the time is coming to gather all nations and tongues. And they shall come and see my glory. And I will set a sign among them. And from them I will send survivors to the nations, to Tarshish, Pool, and Lud, who draw the bow, to Tuval and Javan, to the coastlands far away, that have not heard my fame or seen my glory. And they shall declare my glory among the nations. And they shall bring all your brothers from all the nations as an offering to the Lord on horses and in chariots and in litters and on mules and dromedaries. To my holy mountain, Jerusalem, says the Lord, just as the Israelites bring their grain offering in a clean vessel to the house of the Lord. And some of them also I will take for priests and for Levites, says the Lord. For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. From new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. And they shall go out 
and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. For their worm shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. Do you ever wonder why do we share things in our lives? Why do we post that picture or that statement or that event or that experience on Instagram, Facebook? Why do we bring up our phone or device or if you're of previous generations, maybe you pull out the, the, count, uh, the picture book. It's amazing. We can have all our pictures right there in the palm of our hand. Why why do we share? Why do we show these things? In fact, you might say, why do people show things on social media at all? Have you ever wondered, oh, why, why, what motivated them to, to tell us that, uh, to show us that, uh, to like, retweet, uh, share, all those things? I find myself asking that question often when I'm scrolling through the feed. Why, why did I ever get back on this thing? But I assume that's just the nature of the beast, right? Why do we share, whether it's social media? And I'm, think of the good things. Think of the good things. Why, why do we share our photos our, on our phone? Maybe a, a great book that we've just read or a movie that we have seen. You have got to read this book. You've got to see this movie. Or we invite someone over. Maybe you've just recently decorated in your house or remodeled or, or done something, or maybe you've built something or whatever it may be. We, we often, when we're excited and, and we have something, we, we share it with people. Why do we share? Why do we, why do, we do that? What is in us that says, I want you to experience my joy? The reason we share is because we're created to find joy, brothers and sisters. Find joy and satisfaction outside of ourselves. I mean, really, you could have the best things of the world in your own home, but if you're left there by yourself, it might be a joy for a day, a week, a month, but pretty soon you will get bored of it. And you might say, I wish I had someone here to enjoy it with. We're created for joy, and we're created for relationship, to share that joy. And so at a fundamental level, as creatures made in the image of God, we share what we love. We share what we find beautiful, comforting, jaw-dropping. Why? Because these things have moved us, right? Whether it's a hilarious video that we're sharing on social media or if it's a beautiful picture of our kids. It has moved us. It has impacted us in such a way. I want you to have the same joy and experience that I have through this. The problem often comes is uh, what makes you happy doesn't necessarily make everybody else happy. But that's our motivation, right? I want you to experience this. This brought joy to my heart. And I want the world to see it in whatever fashion I can do it. 
What I want us to see this morning is that God has shared His glorious salvation in Christ with us so that we would be moved by it. So that we would be awestruck, jaw-dropping reflection upon His glorious salvation in Jesus. And He has done so to propel us, to move us, to say, I want you to share this same glory, the same experience. I want you to have the same joy that I have in Jesus. He's built that into us. And we do it all the time. But what I want us to see through this passage, which, which starts with doom and gloom and actually kind of ends on a pretty depressing note as well, but in the middle, that's where I'm going to draw most of our attention today. There's great glory and a great plan that God has to spread His glory by moving His people by it, by stirring their passions for Him. I want us to see that worship is central to mission. We've been in a, a worship series all summer. I kicked it off with a couple of them in the gym, uh, and then we've, we've come back, and, and other brothers have, have led us through. Well, we're capping this series off on missions, but what I want us to see is that missions is not something separate. Missions is actually an outflow, an outworking of our worship. Our values are worship, community, discipleship, mission. There's a reason worship is first. Because everything flows. All Christian obedience, all Christian action is an outworking of our worship of Jesus Christ. And we do all these things and we cap our, our core values with mission. Worship and mission. And everything in between is accomplishing those two ends. So I want us to see that worship is central to the mission and proclaiming Christ to an unbelieving world. But get this, brothers and sisters, we'll only share that which we truly enjoy. We'll only share that which we truly love. We'll only share that which we make much of. And this is why God calls us to find our joy, our love, and our delight in Him so that we'll be moved to declare him to the world. And so really, today's sermon, yes, missions is the outflow, but worship's the goal. Because if we are mesmerized by God's grace, we, we glory in the cross, we, we truly mean what we sing, Jesus, thank you, lover of my soul, you're all I want all I need. If those words are true of us, well, brothers and sisters, we'll, we'll do whatever it is to make his fame known, won't we? And so this really gets underneath the motivation, if you will, for missions. I talked to many of you. We're, we're trying to have a hundred gospel conversations, and I think by now we're about halfway through. We got 50. That's good. Well, we've, we've got five months left. What's going to propel you to share Christ in the next five months? And I would offer to you it's worship. 
but your love for Jesus. Not guilt, not shame. None of those things are genuine motivators, as we'll see. The only motivator for the people of God is the glory of God. And maybe you're saying, I'm not motivated by that. Well, I hope to change that today. And every day as we gather to worship, and that this would be the fountainhead of streams of living water that rush out of here like a, like a, 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 a rapid and throw us out into the community. That's what worship is to be and do. And we see this clearly in Isaiah 66. God's word through the prophet summons us. That's what's going on here. We only read part of it. I'll I'll reference the beginning. But the, the gist here is that Isaiah is summoning us. The word of the Lord is coming to us and calling us and summoning us to a fervently pursue him in worship. That is the goal of Isaiah, if you will. Come and worship the king. Behold the king and his beauty. You remember Isaiah walks into the throne room and sees the train of his robe, and he is awestruck by the glory of God. And he, in turn, by the end of seeing that vision, says, Here I am, Lord, send me. Maybe the reason we don't share as much is because we haven't beheld as much. We haven't sat down and trembled at his word. We haven't beheld his glory as the only begotten son because we've been there and done that. I don't want us to see he is calling us to fervently pursue him in worship. And brothers and sisters, our worship will propel us Our worship will propel us to share in the mission of Christ. John Piper has rightly expressed, you've heard this uh, if you've been here for any amount of time. We talk about missions, and I think he rightly says missions exist because worship doesn't. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Now, Now, regardless if you are a John Piper fan or not, I want you to know that John Piper didn't invent that. He got that from the Bible. And I want you to know Isaiah is saying that in this text long before John Piper or any of us ever existed. So regardless if you like the name or not, the message is biblical. Isaiah said this long before. And if you look at the beginning of chapter 6, just I have to turn one page, but look at in verse, verses 1 and 2. Actually, I'll just summarize that. Lord is revealing himself as the maker of heaven and earth. And he says, this is the one whom I will look, the one who is humble and contrite and who trembles at my word. And then he twists, he turns in verse 3 to speak of those who choose to worship their own way or their own gods. And he likens the sacrifices here. You see verse 3, he who slaughters an ox is like one who kills a man. That's not positive. He who sacrifices a lamb is like one who breaks a dog's neck. God is a dog person, not a cat. He who presents a grain offering like one who offers pig's blood. 
And here's really the the heart of what he's getting after. He who makes a memorial offering of frankincense is like one who blesses an idol. The point being is, God has spoken. He's spoken through his son, and he's called us to worship him as prescribed in his word. And those who offer false worship and do not humble themselves are idolaters. These the Lord says, have chosen their own ways, and look, and their soul delights in their abominations. They do not find their delight in God. That's it. That's the heart of idolatry. Idolaters, false worshipers, do not delight in Him. Do you delight in God? Do you delight in Him? This is an ignorant rebellion then. It's a delightful rebellion. And so as we jump to our passage in verses 15 through 17, God's response here is judgment upon the world. And we can see that this judgment is is an expression of God's holiness and his justice. This is what he communicates when he, he speaks of the fact that he will come with fire, and he will rebuke with the flames of fire, and by fire that the, world, that the Lord will enter judgment. That imagery of, of fire communicates God's holiness. We see pictures of Jesus in the book of Revelation, and his eyes are flaming with fire because no one can escape his gaze. And he knows the hearts of men, and he knows their works. This is the refiner's fire. For those of us who know Christ, this is no fear for us. When the Lord comes in fire, we'll be safe because the full flames of the wrath of God have burnt at the cross. And we stand where the fire has already burned. But all those outside of Christ, this will be a day of terror, a day of weeping when the purity of God comes because unholy people will not endure the presence of a holy God sinners. Humans have a better chance taking on the gaze and the rays of the sun than standing before the hot flaming rays of the glory of God. Well, not only will he judge, this judgment express God's holiness, but also his justice. It says he'll come with his chariots, wielding the sword against all flesh to, to render, that word render is important, to render his anger in fury. What does that mean? He's going to render what is right. He's going to put the world right. That's our hope. But for those who don't trust Christ, who do not worship Him, this is not hopeful. They will get what they deserve. Justice will be served. And we all long for justice, don't we? We see horrible things in in the news. We hear of stories of people who are wronged or or, or children who are harmed. And we cry out, Lord, bring justice. Well, here it is. Here Here it is. He'll bring justice to false worship. Because here's what I want you to understand. False worship, delighting in any other thing, is the root of all evil. It's the root. 
False worship, idolatry, is what is wrong with the world, if you wanted to summarize it and put it in one basket. And he's going to fix this. He's going to render things the way they should be. But notice verse 16, look at the casualties. And those slain by the Lord shall be many. They shall be many. Jesus said something very similar. Wide is the path to destruction, and many find it. Narrow is the gate that leads to life, and few find it. What's the line in the sand that divides the many from the few? It's delight. It's delighting in the Lord. And so worship is the basis of our mission. Missions exist because worship doesn't. That's, that's what God is going to act upon. The, the world has rebelled against Him. And who are those who are going to be slain at the judgment? Who are the many? Look at verse 17. This was us. Those who sanctify and purify themselves. No, Jesus, your blood, I don't need it to wash away my sins. I'm fine. I have another route. I don't believe you. I am just fine. And it is those who go down that path who will be slain. False worship writes checks it cannot cash. False worship promises you the road to destruction doesn't say, hey guys, the road to destruction, come follow me. It doesn't say that. It says happiness, love, relationship, joy, your wildest dreams come true. That door, with those people following Jesus, that's the road to destruction. That's what false worship says. Don't worship him. Don't give him your all. I was hearing from our report earlier of those in Southeast Asia who have a bag of idols in their purse, and they choose which one they see fit for the day. Many, many go down that road. Part of God's mission is to warn humanity. That's His grace. The message has gone out, I'm coming and I'm holy. Come to me. Come to me. That's why it's those who tremble at His word who who find mercy and grace. And so to reject the one who has the words of life and can make the sinful soul clean is suicide. And God is calling humanity to worship for only in Him is life, peace, and comfort. Verse 10, verse 12, and 13. I don't have time to go there. Go look later. So I hope you see more clearly that our, our basis for missions, the reason we're going to the many, not only around the globe, but 
in our neighborhood, in our family, in our workplace, in our school. It's because worship doesn't exist there. But what about our own motivations? This is, this is where I think we all struggle. This is where I struggle. I know that intellectually, but I have to be moved, right? I have to be moved by this truth. And we struggle. And I think it's okay to be honest. I think this is good to discuss in our community groups. I struggle with having that kind of burden for the lost. Do you struggle? Do you struggle having a burden for people? Really believing that verses 15 through 17 is true. I believe, help my unbelief, Jesus. But not only that, I think we struggle to love others enough that we would sacrifice ourselves, our, our time, our reputation, our comfort, our, maybe our very own lives for their eternal good. So how, how do I remedy that? How do you remedy that? Worship. Worship. The remedy is to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And what results? You'll love your neighbor as yourself. How do we cultivate a genuine motivation for missions? This is why this, sun, this summer we have, we have spent nine weeks on worship. We must truly worship. We must sing Him praises. We must behold Him. We must hear Him. We must submit ourselves to Him. We must respond to the revelation that is given to us. And we do that in community. And as we, we see God's Word working in our lives, He moves us and we'll see that this is the means by which He shows us His glory and fame. Now the Lord's coming is not only in judgment, but also for salvation for those who believe. And in verses 18 through 21, we see God's plan to make known His glorious salvation to all the nations. That's what He's getting at. The end of verse eight, uh, 18, And they shall come and shall see my glory. Judgment's coming, but my message of comfort, the year of the Lord's favor, is coming first. They're going to see my glory. What glory? The glories of his salvation. The glories of his salvation. And this plan was revealed through the coming of Christ and his death and resurrection for sinners. You want to see the glory of God, look to the cross and resurrection. And this is what Isaiah is prophesying in verses 18 through 21. In verse 18, we read that in light of God's coming in judgment, he's going to gather all people from every nation and tongue. For what purpose? To see his glory. And what I want us to understand is that to see his glory is to behold, to wonder, to, to be moved by the salvation that is ours in Christ. And that is the missionary heart of God. That people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language would behold His glory in that way. 
So how's he going to do that? Well, first, verse 19, I will set a sign among them, he says. I will set a sign among them. Well, what's the sign? Well, Isaiah's spoken of a pretty significant sign all the way in chapter 7. We only read that one at, at Christmas time. But the Lord himself will give you a sign that will confirm his promises to you. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. What is that? God with us. Oh, God's glory is coming. And it's come in his son, Jesus Christ. The Gospel of John picks up on this sign language. And if, if you're familiar of the seven signs of the Gospel of John, which begins at the wedding of Canaan and the turning of water into wine, but they all culminate into one magnificent sign. Do you know what sign that is? The resurrection. I will give you a sign, the sign of Jonah. Who was in the belly of a whale for three days and three nights, so will the Son of Man be in the belly of the earth three days and three nights. I will perform a sign that will draw the nations. That flare is going to go up and everybody in the world is going to see and wonder about that sign. That's what God has done. This is the sign that he has set among the nations to reveal his glorious salvation. And, and for us now, we're, we're on this side of the cross. You understand why the New Testament writers spoke of the prophets who, who gaze in wonder, wondering, what do these things mean? If we didn't have the Gospels, we'd say, okay, great, he's going to put a sign up in the road. I don't know. But we know. It's the cross, the resurrection. And in Acts chapter 2, we see how this passage actually begins to be fulfilled. As God's Holy Spirit comes, it's interesting, with fire and a whirlwind. Sounds very similar. So the Lord will come in fire and His chariots like a whirlwind. Oh, there's more to those verses. This day of the Lord is going to encompass many things, both judgment and salvation. And I will pour my spirit upon all flesh. And what happens in, in Acts chapter 2? If you're not familiar, I encourage you to read there. There are Jews brought in for Pentecost from the 12 nations, which represents the world. And they come. And they begin speaking in tongues. And everyone hears the mighty deeds of God in their own language. And what we see here is that they come and they hear of the death and resurrection. Peter preaches. And they are cut to the heart. And they say, what must we do? And he says, repent and be baptized for forgiveness of sins. Repent and be baptized. And that's the call for any of you here today. If you do not know Jesus, if you do not delight in him, the sign has been given. He has been risen. He has died for your sins Turn from your own way and delighting in the things of this world and find your delight in Him. Come to Him. And He will wash all your sins away. And we will find at the end of this sermon what this is all leading to. 
And so there's these group, you, you know, there's 120 in the upper room in Acts, and then these others from all the nations gather, and the Spirit is poured upon them, and they declare the mighty deeds of God. It's the beginning of a remnant that God is calling out after judgment has fallen upon the cross. Isaiah calls them in verse 19, survivors, survivors. These are those who when Jesus spoke and when Peter preached, their hearts were not hardened, but their hearts were opened. Grace was poured out upon them. And what do they do? What does God do with them? Look at verse 19. And I will set a sign among them, that's the nations, and, and from them, we know this is an axe, I will send survivors to the nations. To Tarshish, Pool, Lud, who draw the bow, to Tuval and Javan, to the coastlands far away. Jesus said to the ends of the earth. And that's the story of the book of Acts. And so these Jews who have been integrated into the nation come in. These God-fearers, they come in hearing of for Pentecost, but they hear the sign of the Lord. Jesus is, or God's anointed has both died and risen. And God has made him both Lord and Christ. They come, and now they're to disperse. And what are they to disperse to? to? They're to disperse to the nations, to all the coastlands far away, to those who have not heard my fame or seen my glory. What are they doing? Now, we think, I wasn't there to see the resurrection. I wasn't there to see the empty tomb. But you have the gospel which declares that glorious news. And neither did they. They didn't see it either. And yet they go, and they're able with this message to show people the glory of God. Because the glory of God has been manifested through the word of Christ. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of Christ. And so do you see the motivation for these missionaries? For this remnant, as Isaiah calls them, survivors. They were drawn to Christ, beheld His glory through the proclamation of His death, burial, resurrection, and now, motivated by that glory, we go to the ends of the earth, and that's the book of Acts. The motivating factor was worship. They declared the mighty deeds of God. And now they take this glorious message to the ends of the earth, even to the dangerous places. That's what Isaiah means when he says, Lud, and who draw the bow? You arrive, they shoot you. And yet, these missionaries are going to go. And what is it that motivates them? Because they have beheld the glory of Christ. They've beheld it. But this missionary work does not end with the remnant of Acts. They declare God's glory, His glorious salvation of Christ to the nations, but notice verse 20. So they go to the nations, and they, who's the they? The nations. The nations now shall bring all your brothers from all the nations. Do you see the multiplying factor that's going on here? So a remnant sees the glory of God. 
remnant from the nations. They go out to the nations, and the nations believe, and they bring brothers with them. That is the mission of God. And it all starts with the glory of God and that sign he set through the resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. The word of Christ's glory is multiplying, and as the nations believe, they share this message of glory. This is us. We're verse 20, and we bring all our brothers from all the nations. That's what we're doing. We're the brothers, and we're getting more brothers and sisters. We're expanding the family because we have beheld the glory of Christ. Do you see at the end of verse 20 the act of worship, though? As an offering to the Lord. If you're trying to share Christ out of duty, guilt, of this is what's going to get God off my back, you, 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 you don't understand. No, no, I gladly share Christ because he's all I have and he's joyous and I want the world to have that same joy. And Lord, I want you to receive more glory. My, my lips, they're limited. My story's just one story. But oh, may the world declare of your glory. That's what motivates and, and that's what excites and that is what is a sweet smelling aroma to the Lord's nostrils. It's an offering to the Lord as we go and evangelize and go to the mission field. It's an expression of our worship. And so we will never go if we do not worship. We'll never go. As one commentator rightfully states, God does not deliver his servants so that they can revel in the experience of sharing his glory. Rather, he delivers them so that they can be witnesses of that glory to the world. Do you live for the glory of Christ? Do you live for the glory of Christ? Is that what gets you up in the morning? Because you love him and you cherish him and you want your life to reflect him. Do you say with Paul to live as Christ? And to die is gain. Do you come to worship? Do you wake each morning? And I know this is a battle. Don't act like, oh, I wake up. Man, I'm just fired for, on fire for the Lord. No. I have to fight every single day. Fight for joy. But do you fight? Do you set your sights and say, Lord, I want to live for your glory. And the only way that I can live is I must, have, I must have something already on fire to spark this heart, and I need the living word of God to live in me. Some of us think, well, God's not doing anything in my life. I'll ask, are you, are, are you spending time with him? No, I want him to do something before I see him. That's not how it works. What about on the Lord's Day? Do you come prepared? Do you prepare your heart to say, I want to see the glory of God as we sing, as we pray, as we read, as we confess, as we participate in the ordinances? For it's when we seek Him and we search with Him with our whole heart that He says, you'll find me.
For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. How do we see the face of Christ? By hearing the proclamation of Christ in the gospel. Or as Isaiah says in verse 2, 66, we tremble at his word. When our whole lives are directed in worship toward Christ, when they are consumed with his beauty, all we have become sanctified instruments. Notice they, they bring these offerings, verse 20, on horses and in chariots and in litters and on mules and on dromedaries. What are those? Those are camels. Where? We're taking them to the holy mountain, heavenly Jerusalem, to Jesus Christ, to worship all these items of transportation help you in various terrain are now instruments to bring people to the glory of God. We just heard a little bit about that. I wish all of you were there. I'll start a business, not to make money, but to be a launching pad for the gospel. I'll have a clinic, and, and I'll do it so I can preach the gospel. I'll use my horse, my car, my boat, my bike, my education, my job, my influence to bring people to the glory of God. That's what's going on here. These earthly things, not in a negative sense, become holy things. They become like Israelites who bring their grain offering in a clean vessel to the house of the Lord. When the Lord saves you for his glory to declare his good news to the world, all your possessions, they now have purpose where before they had none. Oh, you think they have purpose. They only have purpose if they live for the glory of God. So how are you using your life and your resources for his means? Well, you will only do that if you find him most delightful. If you worship. Well, what's our goal? What's our goal for missions? And this is where we'll wrap up. Well, worship, surprise, surprise, is God's end game. It's the goal by which he's bringing the world to culmination. That's verses 22 through 23. For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring. That's good news. And your name shall remain. I'm going to create a world that lasts forever. And if you worship me and you're a part of it, you too will remain. You won't be, verse 24. From new moon to new moon, from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh at that time shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. That should get you excited. You should be moved with joy and anticipation of what God does when he makes a new heavens and a new earth. What God says here is that when he comes, and, and yeah, we're thinking now Christ's second coming, He's coming to remake the heavens and the earth so that they remain forever. What does that mean? No curse. No curse. And his people will dwell there forever, which means no death. And God will be worshipped there every day of the month and every day of the week. That means no sadness. 
Because the worship of the living God is joy, peace, and gladness. Verses 10, 12, 13 of Isaiah 66. That's the goal. In all flesh, every person who remains, who survives that day of judgment, will experience no curse, no death, no sadness for all eternity. This is why everything we do in the worship service is word-centered. Because it's all about worship. What we win people with is what we win them to. Do you understand that? And if you aren't, if we aren't trying to win people to worship the glory of God, well, then we aren't doing the mission. It doesn't matter what label you put on it. God is seeking worshipers. And when you come to Oak Park, we should be found worshiping. This past week, I met with a new family visiting. And I heard their story. I asked, what, what brought you to Oak Park? I said, for the past four years, my cousin, one of the members at Oak Park, has been sharing the gospel with me at every holiday. And it ticked me off. <laughs> and I knew every time, asked me, will you come to Oak Park? Will you come to Oak Park? He said, I don't need to go. All churches are just the same, which what I read was no glory. Nothing's happening there. It's man-made. One time I said, all right, I'll get them off my back. I'll come, but this is your one shot. Comes on a Sunday, comes to Sunday school, and hears the word expounded. Life was changed forever. They've been coming every Sunday, have not missed one for the past six months, and they drive an hour every Sunday to get here. Why would they do that? Because they've seen the glory of God. I look forward to you hearing their testimony in a few weeks. But that, that's the mission. And their mission now will be to go tell others and say, hey, come hear what I've heard. Come see what I have seen. Jesus Christ raised from the dead.